Hey, it's Dan here. You're listening to the OK Computer Takeover of the On The Tape feed. Every Wednesday, I co-host a podcast on all things technology, both public and private markets, with a murderer's row of tech investors, former operators, and thought leaders. We will be squarely focused on the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3, whatever that means. And we've already had a couple of great guests like Adam Bain, the former Twitter COO and investor at O1 Advisors, and Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit and investor at 776. So please follow OK Computer in the podcast stores and follow us on Twitter at OK Computer Pod. All right, Packy, good to see you, buddy. Uh, you're keeping it high and tight there down in Miami. It's freezing up here in New York City. How you doing down there? I'm doing well, man. I have to stay down here as long as my hair is short because it's it's just too cold up there for the short hair. Is that what's going on? All right, fair enough. All right, listen, let's talk about this. You have a great platform at Not Boring. You decided to use your Monday post, yesterday's post. It was just called Ukraine. Resources, links, and a little optimism. You did your thing. You have nearly 106,000 subscribers. You have obviously a very big Twitter following. In that post, you started out by saying, normally, my sponsor, Masterworks, which is also a sponsor of this fine podcast, and you are listening to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. This is Packy McCormick with me here. But you're donating your Masterworks sponsorship for this post to efforts to aid Ukrainian citizens and possibly in the military. And you have a whole link fest. We'll put that in the show notes of the pod here. But talk to me a little bit about why you use your platform in this way. And we're going to talk a little bit about crypto and Web3 and what's going on as it relates to this situation. But how did this come about? Came about, I think, in a few ways. One was, feels like a, a phrase that we're saying more and more and more these days, but we are living through historic times and it's the biggest invasion in the West since World War II. Just kind of watching all of this play out in real time on social media has been surreal. I'm not the first person to say that. I linked to a couple of tweets in the posts that talked about that, but it is wild that you can see on the ground the suffering, the bravery, the heroism of people being attacked by a foreign adversary and neighbor. And so to, I think, watch all of that going on and then just write one of my normal fun posts about a company just felt a little bit off this week and really tried to write the piece without being melodramatic or overstating my importance in the thing because I'm not important at all. But I wanted to send something. I have, as you pointed out, 106,000 people who read this. And I know that I'd been kind of confused about where to donate and what resources to follow to keep up to date with things. So I wanted to use that for good. I didn't feel like it was the right moment to send something else. The other piece of it was just over the weekend, watching a few of these things in the spaces that I cover that really just blew my mind and inspired me. One was just the people using crypto to donate in real time, borderlessly from across the world. And so Ukraine itself put up crypto wallets that Vitalik came out and said, I don't know, these might be fake. And then and then people at A16Z verified with the Ukrainian government that they're real. So those raised, as of last check, over $5 million in the ETH wallet alone. There was Ukraine DAO, which used an innovative structure, auctioning off an NFT where everybody could contribute. And they were up over $3.3 million there. So that and then the Elon stuff, I thought was just absolutely incredible that you have this guy that can be a countervailing force to the Russian space agency's threats and also uh, someone who'd go help get internet up online in the Ukraine during the middle of this. It's pretty fascinating. You did a really nice job laying all of that out. 
Just so you know, Guy Dami, my partner who you know at Risk Reversal Media, we're also going to donate. You inspired us, the money that Masterworks pays us, to sponsor our podcast to some of those links that you put in there. So hopefully you can help us navigate that a little bit. And so I encourage everyone also to do that. You had this line in your post, and it said, it's fascinating to watch how easy it's been for the world's nations to shut the bad guy out of the financial system and how easy it's been for the good guys to raise money from anyone, anywhere in the world instantly. Now, I want to push back for one second here because you talked about Elon. For years, he's been viewed by some as the potential real-life Bond villain. And so as good as this stuff might be right now in this situation, or at least from our vantage point, you can see how easily it could be used for bad also. Do you agree with that? I do. And hardcore history and Dan Carlin is just one of the people who I would just outsource my thinking to completely on all number of topics. And I remember at the end of the Obama administration, when Obama was starting to reach a little bit further in terms of executive powers and all of that, he was like, if you're on the left, you're celebrating right now. And I get it. But think about what happens when somebody that you don't like is in power. And this precedent has been set. And so I always think about that in situations like this. Is What kind of precedent are you setting that when someone who doesn't agree with you is doing the same thing, how would you feel about that? At the same time, what's been really interesting to me is that I think a lot of the Elon stuff is the internet likes fighting with itself over certain things. And of course, the richest man in the world is going to get a bunch of heat for different things. And of course, he kind of looks a little bit like a villain. He was super awkward on Saturday Night Live. He's pumping Dogecoin. So he does some things that are like a little weird. But at the same time, this guy made electric vehicles cool. It has a government scale space company, bigger than most government space programs, that is enabling all of this other cool stuff to happen in space. And by the way, is providing internet to uncovered parts of the world and solar and, and, and. And so I think when you put aside your differences, the petty differences in a time like this, and just look at the actual scale and magnitude of what he's done, it seems like a pretty good thing overall. And But the funny thing is, I just say, if any of these oligarchs had brains other than super yachts and Premier League teams, they could be counterbalancing what's going on with Elon. It's just a really interesting situation. I think it's one that we really need to be cognitive of because we are getting into that weird world where sci-fi and Bond movies are becoming reality. Here's a guy who thinks about the future a lot. I'm sure you're a fan. I don't know if you and I have ever talked about him, but Balaji Sarvasan, and he tweeted this the other day or yesterday. I thought it was really interesting. So the best case outcome, Ukraine and Russia agree to a ceasefire. Ukraine says they won't join NATO. They don't need it, clearly. Putin gets to declare win, pulls back, nuclear crisis averted. Then Navalny aligns with Vitaly Buterin to win a real election and rebuild Russia. What did you make of that? Because that seems pretty interesting. I I really tried to avoid any prognostication in my post because I think I wrote that I would be between the four and seven billionth best person to talk about this. And I believe that I just started following the situation at the same time that everybody else did. I think the fascinating thing there in the world that I inhabit is this idea of a politician joining forces with, in this case, a crypto rich person, but a crypto rich person who has a network of very, very wealthy people who largely, I think, probably think at least kind of directionally the same way about things. I think that is super, super fascinating. But beyond that, I I am 
not a geopolitical expert by any stretch of the imagination. I just thought it was interesting because one of the major pillars of the crypto movement is really censorship resistance. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting that's played out over the last few days or so as the sanctions were considered very weak, the economic sanctions last week, crypto was trading very near six month lows or something like that. And then like that, when it seemed the West and a lot of different sorts of organizations in the public markets got together and we saw potentially SWIFT being isolated, just a whole host of other assets being frozen all over the world. You saw Bitcoin in particular rally literally 30%, it felt like, in a little more than 24 hours. What did you make of that? Because again, it bolsters the case about censorship resistance, but it also feeds into the fact that, oh, if the oligarchs have nowhere else to put their assets, it's going to go there. And I'm just curious what your take is on that. I want to flip it actually first back on you to just get your take on what's going on in the markets overall. To me, just being a non-markets expert, it's almost kind of what I said the last time that we talked about this. It just seems so silly and reactive and algo-driven and whatever that anything happens, there's a sell-off and probably I need to look at the numbers, but one of the best trading strategies over the past X number of months would have to just be buying any sell-off over 10%, selling it the next day. The last few months? The last... 13 years since the financial crisis. But I think your point is one that it's all becoming a lot more interconnected. And a lot of that has to do with technology. And a lot of that has to do with the algos that are looking at almost every piece of data that is in any feed anywhere on the world and it's processing it at record speed. And so I think what's going on right now is really interesting because the US stock market was already selling off before this became front burner sort of thing. Crude oil had already been moving higher. The Fed and many other central banks around the world had already set their course in raising interest rate, tightening monetary policy that was left unusually loose because of the pandemic. And so the fear there, obviously, as you know, is that the longer that they kept their foot on the pedal with rates low and a lot of stimulus, the further risk assets in general were being inflated. And then this whole idea that we're going to have a global reflation after the pandemic was causing commodity prices to go higher. Now you have a geopolitical situation where all of those things are actually exasperated and the supply demand situation changes a whole heck of a lot. And so the Fed actually can't do what's in their playbook, in their crisis playbook, which is to lower interest rates. Because if they do that right now with a strain on supply of commodities, then you have a situation where we could be hiking into a recession globally, and then we're going to have prices just stay higher based on a lot of these things. And we haven't even mentioned the potential for a dust up with China and Taiwan, which would further exasperate supply chains, that sort of thing. But I'll just say this, the Fed can't take a step back here. They have to continue to battle inflation. And normally, a few weeks away from a Fed meeting where they're expected to raise interest rates, right now you'd be seeing a lot of trial balloons being floated. We're saying, ah, maybe they push it off to the next meeting. One of the interesting things to me that was not my point, because I'm not smart enough, nor do I follow it closely, but my friend Ben, who runs Composer and looks at this stuff all day, was like, you know what? There was this flight to safety, which pushed down rates, which increase the price of growth assets. And it there's all this complicated stuff, but if you play it out, 
But this time is different, and I'll tell you why. Because what happened is is that Fed funds futures were pricing a 50 basis point increase, and it would be the first increase for three years or something like that off of an unusually low rate, just above zero. That was a couple months ago. It was better than a 50-50 chance. Now it's much below a 50-50 chance. They're still expected to raise 25 basis points. So it really doesn't matter. The market already moved in front of it, if you will. Now, normally when you see interest rates come down, that makes all sorts of other risk assets more attractive. But right now, you're seeing this slowing growth. And that's one of the reasons we're taping this Tuesday afternoon into the close. And I'm looking at my fact set screen, and I see all sorts of high valuation tech stocks that have been selling off for a year because interest rates started going higher in Q1 of 2021. They're getting murdered today too. So the fact that interest rates might not go as high as quickly is not really mattering. And then the other thing, it's impossible not to have this conversation and talk about what's happening happening with financial stocks. Look at bank stocks. I'm looking at JP Morgan down 4.5%, Bank America down 4%, Wells Fargo, which doesn't have a lot of international exposure, down 5%. So the point here is that who knows what these sanctions are going to have, the effects, what kind of banks have exposure, what sort of defaults that could occur. And this is something right out of the financial crisis playbook that happened to be a rolling financial crisis that went across Europe for years after ours was considered over. But this brings me to the fact also, so we said, okay, maybe it was those sanctions that caused Bitcoin and the crypto space just to rocket 20, 25% and its high is 30%. But it was also, to your point, your friend Ben saying the notion that the Fed might not be as hawkish as they were prior to this event, isn't that the point? Isn't that why Bitcoin was originally created by Satoshi? The idea was that central banks globally were just going to devalue all currencies. But it is happening. Everything is following Bitcoin, which I think is still one of the sillier characteristics of the crypto markets. But as Bitcoin rallied, ETH rallied, people, the meme token that was left over from the Constitution DAO, people rallied even more. And that is not an inflationary hedge. So it all trades a little bit together. I think maybe there's a bit of Bitcoin as an inflation hedge, probably more just growth on, risk on, and risk on without having to worry about actual numbers or growth of Zoom slowing down or something like that. With Bitcoin and Ethereum, you don't have to worry about those same things bringing you back down to earth, at least as much in the short term. So it is maybe just a better vessel to place a bet like that when you don't want to think about the next effects of what happens to the individual companies kind of involved in the NASDAQ, et cetera. Maybe there's something there. I get this question all the time. Every time I'm on CNBC Fast Money and there's a big down day, they'll say, what are you buying? What are you looking at? What's on your radar? What's on your buy list? And you know what's really interesting is I kind of feel like this reset, this valuation reset has been literally 10 years coming. And it took a whole host of really awful things to make that happen. The pandemic being top of mind here, but the reset as far as global rates is happening. And we haven't seen that in a very long time. But I would much rather buy, let's say, ETH or Solana or something, then let's say if I were going to buy three ETH for 10 grand versus 10 grand of some NASDAQ stock that's been murdered by 50%. We spent a lot of time last week's episode talking about Kathy Wood and the ARK Innovation ETF, and she had been on CNBC. And her defense about many of these stocks in her portfolio, or most of them down at least 50%, was investing in innovation, investing in innovation, investing in innovation. I don't see any stock on the NASDAQ at its current valuation, which makes 
makes sense investing for innovation. To me, that doesn't make any sense. But buying some crypto like ETH or a Solana where innovation is being built on top of it, on its shoulders, that to me is investing in innovation. I don't mean to criticize her because she was super early in crypto, super early in EVs, super early in a lot of these secular shifts as it relates to fintech and such. But to me, when you think about some of the most interesting things happening in the world right now relate to DeFi, relate to NFTs and that sort of thing. So I'm just curious, when you think about your investable assets, and traditionally, I'm sure most of it had been in high growth tech stocks before you caught the crypto bug. How do you think of that allocation of how you're putting new money to work in the markets? I've had so many opportunities to buy the dip in crypto, but it really has been I'd say the past week, if you just, and obviously not investment advice, because I can lose more money than the next guy. But the past week on the sell-off, I bought a bunch of ETH, which I've been doing the whole way down. So I got a bunch of ETH in like the 2300 range, which thank you, I'll eat that every single time. I bought more Soul and I bought Flow actually, which is what Top Shot was built on top of that blockchain, which has also gotten a little bit crushed. And so I just bought those and it's hard for me to look through right now to any of the growth stocks in particular without doing a ton of work on any kind of single name and getting really excited. At some point here, we're getting to a point where I'm just going to take all of my cash and dump it into a mix of tech stocks and crypto, because at some point, do you think that this is the highest that tech will ever go in the future? Probably not. One of the things that I think is really interesting coming out of this Ukraine-Russia situation in particular, but I think was there anyway, is this move back to what A16Z is calling American dynamism, but is people building things in the physical world with atoms. And I think there's going to be this really interesting bifurcation where it's going to be very cutting edge Web3 metaverse, if you want to use that word, kind of stuff on one end. And then on the other end, manufacturing and space and defense and all the stuff that Founders Fund and Lux have been funding and A16Z just spun up a fund for. To me, that's fast. Like That's what I want to see. I want to see the craziest, most out there shit that you can build on the internet. And then I want to see the craziest, most out there shit that you can build in the physical world. And anything else in the middle is like a little bit boring. But that's the thing about the NASDAQ and looking at these hundreds of stocks that are listed on the NASDAQ or the NYSE. If you were looking to express that same exact view that you just mentioned, it's actually really hard to find it in existing publicly traded companies. And I think you and I would agree that Apple and Microsoft and Alphabet and Amazon, they do lots of really innovative things that tweak their existing businesses. But there's never going to be a business at any one of those that overtakes their existing cash cows. So there's a lot of little things that are going on. They're very interesting, but there's no creating a new half a trillion dollar business at Apple or anything like that. So where do you go to find that? You have to do it in the private markets. You have to do it in the crypto related spaces. And I just think, again, the one thing I'll say, and Packy, you're a bit younger than me, buddy, is that when we have the sort of funky markets that we're having right now, there's one thing that's really consistent. Into the highs in 2000, the US Federal Reserve was hiking. Into the highs in 2007, the U.S. Federal Reserve was hiking. In both instances, they were trying to really kind of choke off asset bubbles, and they did it. And what happened is when the risk assets started going lower, there was this negative wealth effect, and there was a bunch of other things that knock on effects, and they took some time to find a bottom. Now, what happened in 2020 was clearly a black swan, and they lowered interest rates into that, and that inflated the bubble again. So what are we dealing with right now? We're dealing with a tightening Fed that's been 
been tapering their bond purchases. They've been signaling there to raise interest rates. And so if there's one thing that's going to be consistent in my mind, based on my history in the markets, is that we will not have a V reversal in the stock market this time around. It's going to take some time to work itself out. Now, I think a lot of the leadership might be the same because Apple and Microsoft and Alphabet and Amazon, they're just too big. And if the market's going to come back, it's going to need those four stocks are like 25% of the S&P 500, throw NVIDIA and Tesla in there and we get higher. So you get my point. So don't expect a V reversal now, but you tell me because you've been in crypto for a few years and just look at the volatility in Bitcoin in particular, or any of the big layer ones, there's been fortunes made and loss. And the key point here is you're able to buy ETH at 2300 because you have cash that's ready to be deployed. But the problem that a lot of people have in the stock market is they make huge mistakes at the tops. They're max invested. And then the money goes poof and they're investing on margin. And then when you have that 30, 40% decline, which happens every seven, eight years or so, you don't have the capital to put in. This is why I don't trade on margin. My greatest gift at anything is knowing how dumb I am. If I'm not better than the market, I shouldn't be trading on margin. And yeah, I think that's probably why I'm able to buy these dips. But I am you know, recklessly buying dips. So I'm not saying that I'm smarter than anybody here on that. All right. Well, listen, here's one. Our producer, Brendan, just before you jumped on, he was asking me, or I don't know if he was making fun of me or not, but last week when Melton was on, we were talking about my latest NFT purchase that I aped into. It was a crypto dick butt. Do you have any crypto dick butts? I have a butthead, but I don't have a crypto dick butt. I've always really appreciated the art and you know, obviously the naming of the crypto dick butts. They're beautiful. And I saw yours. It's lovely. Yeah. Well, the problem is I had to take it down because crypto crashed 20% in the days after. It's horrible. And I did this with a chain runner. I followed you. I saw that you bought one of those a while back and it seemed like a really cool project. And crypto, again, crashed 20%. So I had to take it down from my PFP. What's the deal with me? Did you hold on to the chain runner? Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, so it went up and now it's back down below one. But the chain runners are doing well recently. Yeah, I don't I don't know, but I think they're all kind of fun. I mean, I don't really get it. Alexis Ohanian was on a few weeks ago with Rick Heitzman and me, and he's obviously a huge collector of NFTs, and he's really like you. He's a huge thought leader in Web3, and I'm sure he's going to get a ton of stuff right, and there's going to be some other stuff that goes by the wayside, and he does not pretend to know, just like you, which way it's going to go. But I said to him, and we have a bet, we bet 10 grand, it's going to go to a charity in a year from then, and I think it was late January or so, that the floor price price of bored apes a year from now they're going to be below where they were at the time and i think it was about like 82 eth and at the time eth was like 3200 or 3300 or so and my point is that i don't really see the scarcity argument if we were to go into a period where let's say the underlying currencies go lower i get the fact that the floor price can stay higher but to me I don't get the scarcity thing anymore. And then the incentives will be for that same project to launch board sheep club or something. I don't know. They do have the mutant apes and all that other stuff, but I guess they're almost like cash flow producing or yield generating assets in a sense that you get first access to the board ape kennel club and to the mutant apes and all those things by holding. That was also, I think, probably why our chain runners have gone up because they announced that anybody who owns gets a collaboration that they're doing to get a 3D version of your chain. So a bunch of the more interesting projects, Wanderer is another one that I love, that they have the profile pictures coming out. They gave you the planets. And so just by holding on to these things, you get to get these assets as they build out the universe. I think that stuff is pretty interesting. What I've actually been shocked at in the sell-off is that so many of the shit NFT projects 
have maintained their value. I mean, like some have totally gone to hell. There was also just even in CryptoPunks, the guy who had to pull the Sotheby's auction the other day. And so it's not all roses, but I'm shocked at how many have retained value despite the sell-off. This is one thing we've been talking about it on the podcast for the last couple months. Rick and Meltem, and I'm sure you would say this, I know you're new to VC over the last year, year and a half, but usually there's a six to nine month lag as far as valuations are concerned. And don't think that it's going to hit some of these private companies, forget building in Web3, but just the Web2 stuff that's still very prevalent and still seeing billions of dollars invested, and it's not going to hit NFT projects. It just can't happen because to me, they're very similar. And the other thing is, is like, I don't think they're particularly innovative if you love the community and you're in the discord and you get all this new stuff well it's costing you eth every time you do one of these new things or whatever it's kind of an expensive hobby if they stop going up that's the one thing i would say and there doesn't seem to be any shortage of people rushing to the space and the last point i'll just make of this is that brendan said to me are you in the discord when you tweeted that it was your tweet profile pic was in the discord i'm not in discord and i know you did a deep dive on discord on not boring last year and it was really fascinating I can't figure it the fuck out, dude. It's not intuitive to me. I go in there and it might as well be on WeChat or something. I don't get it. I think I even wrote that it's like the place that makes me feel oldest on the internet. It's hard to keep up. I completely agree. I think it's well designed. If you go into one Discord chat, a one well-run Discord, and like that was your only thing and it replaced Slack for your company, great. It is the fact that Every project has a Discord. And so there's just no possible way to keep up with every Discord that you need to be keeping up with. Yeah. All right. Here's one last question. So Rick Heitzman and I interviewed Wick Grossbeck. He is the governor of the Boston Celtics. He is the lead owner of that group. And that conversation is going to come on right after this. So stick around, people. He asked us a question I thought was really interesting. We were talking about the metaverse. He was asking about it. My thought is really interesting. In a league like the NBA, which has this amazing content, they have these amazing characters, if you want to call them that. And it's not just as long as the season goes on, it's year round and everything like that. My point was, and I think you agree with this. You and I have talked about it. You've been on Fast Money talking about the metaverse. There's not just going to be one metaverse and Zuck is not going to be the overlord of it. There's going to be lots of metaverses. And one of the things that's interesting is like a brand like the Celtics, they will have their own metaverse. And that metaverse will not devalue the real world experience. If anything, I think there'll be a scarcity value of going in and seeing a live game of them playing the Lakers or the Knicks or anything like that in the Boston Garden. In some ways, I think it's a huge boon for great brands that have great community and these things existed i hate to tell you buddy they existed before the term web3 ever came about they were built for web3 one go sixers if the season ended today the sixers would be playing the celtics in the playoffs but two i think that speaks to the point that i was making before where there's this horseshoe or this barbell where on one side are these really interesting digital immersive experiences and then it's going to be really really hard to replace for a while great in-person experiences. I thought a really interesting conversation. I don't know if you've been listening to the Lex Friedman podcast at all, but it's so good. I just got into it. Just interviewed Zuck the other day, but he interviewed Tim Urban, who writes Wait But Why? And they were talking about Elon's Neuralink, which is another Elon thing that's like not even really hit yet. And talking about how far away we are from being able to reproduce every sensation of going to a game live in your brain without a device. Until we get to that point, I think that the in-person experience is going to be hard to overcome. 
There was an in-person experience this past Saturday. I was in the Carrier Dome, and I watched your Duke Blue Devils beat my Syracuse Orange by nearly 30. It was horrible, but I will tell you, it was a really great moment. I think you probably know Coach K is really tight with Jim Behind, the coach of Syracuse. They coached the U.S. national team together for years. They had a great moment at midcourt before the game, and they actually announced they're going to have an annual award in their athletic department with Coach K's name on it, which I thought was really cool. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, listen, Packy, you're the man. I really enjoyed reading your Monday post. It was not a happy Monday. I'm not boring, but I think you actually helped your readers point them in a direction. And I think all the links and all the stuff about what people are doing to help Ukrainians, I think is pretty fascinating. You motivated me. I was already giving to some things, but I love it. Our friends at Masterworks are really focused on donating to the cause too. So Risk Reversal Media, Guy and I are going to join you in that. So thanks a lot, Packy. We really appreciate it, bud. I love it. I appreciate you joining in. Well, listen, when we come back, Rick Heitzman and I sit down with Wick Grosbeck. He is the governor and the lead owner of the Boston Celtics. So stay tuned. Thanks a lot. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Wick Grousebeck has been the governor of the Boston Celtics since he conceived of the purchase of the team and then organized the new ownership group in 2002. Wick named the group Banner 17 LLC to signify his primary goal, the Celtics winning a 17th world championship, which was achieved in 2008 as the Celtics beat the Lakers to become champions for the first time in 22 years. In 2010, Wick became chairman of Massachusetts Eye and Ear and led a $250 million capital campaign to support the fight against blindness and deafness. In 2013, Wick co-founded Causeway Partners, a private equity firm managing over $340 million focusing on sports and technology investments. Causeway's investments include Omaze, Zwift, SeatGeek, Quint Events, and Flow Sports. Wick's earlier career involved time as a venture capital investor in Boston and as a securities lawyer in Silicon Valley. Wick and his wife, Amelia, are involved in a number of charities, including Mass Eye and Ear, the Boston Celtics, Shamrock Foundation, Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, Camp Jabberwocky, Robin Hood, Make-A-Wish, Horizons for Homeless Children, and the Love Lane Special Needs Riding Program. Wick holds degrees from Princeton, Michigan, and Stanford, and in college, he rowed for an undefeated crew that claimed the National Rowing Championship. In his spare time, he plays drums and rhythm guitar for the rock band French Lick. Wick, welcome to OK Computer. Hey, Wick, great to have you on OK Computer with us today. Dan just walked through your bio, but it's been wonderful getting to know you over the last couple of years, not only on the board of Omaze, but just talking about all kinds of stuff. And as we were out watching the Celtics beat the Nets the other night, it was just, if we could have a fourth wall of this conversation and just talk about all the stuff we normally talk about of sports, tech, media, all of our passions and expose it to the OK Computer listenership. That'd be awesome. So we appreciate you joining us for it. Sounds great, Rick. It's been great getting to know you and not so much talk with you as listen to you over the last couple of years. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> In truth, you're just like a Renaissance guy. You do so much. And Dan, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And this is going to be great. 
Well, thanks a lot, Wick. We got a lot to talk about other than just basketball. And I'd love to hear that you guys were at a Celtics-Nets game. There's probably very few teams that you enjoy beating more than the Nets. We know the ones out west here, but that one has to be a personal place in your heart. And then obviously Rick's is Sixers. I mean, that's got to happen. It takes a lot for me to root for the Celtics, but I was a Celtics fan that night. Big W for the home team that night. It was nice to beat the Nets, and I thought we might be on Zoom today. I had a background. Couldn't fit all the Celtics banners on, you know. <laughs> As we've talked about things, I think one of the great stories I've heard around sports and sports ownership is how you came to be the Celtics owner and how you came to buy the team. I think it'd be just great to share that story as sports, sports media, and sports ownership has changed a lot over the last 17 years. But how you got from here to there and how you found your passion, I think, is just a great entrepreneurial story. Thank you. Well, part of it is to be really thought of as a co-owner because I have some great, great partners and it would not have happened without them. And a lot of people know a bunch of my co-owners, Steve Paliuka, Paul Edgerly, Jim Pilata, and Jim Cash, Bob Epstein. So I definitely couldn't afford to buy a team now, but I actually really probably couldn't afford to have done it back in 2002, but pulled it off, just had the idea. I'm Boston born and raised, and I actually am not just a basketball guy. I'm a nut about all the teams, the way you are with Philly, and that's just the way it is, all the teams, and go to all the games that you can with your dad or your friends or whomever. And so I just thought maybe I should give a call to the owner of the Celtics, who's a good guy. His family had owned it for a while, but I just wasn't sure if he would have any interest in selling and was able to meet with him. And what made you pick up the phone? Obviously, a lot of us growing up, huge sports fans are thinking about that would be great. But very few people actually pick up the phone to make that happen. I'm not sure. I will tell you this. I was a little bored in my job at age 41. And I remembered the days when I liked what I was doing more or what was the best me I could imagine being or something. I don't mean to make that sound weird, like on some pedestal. I'm just saying, when was I the happiest or the most energized or in overdrive, fifth gear? And it was back playing a sport in college and obsessing about it for four years and being all in. And so that was rowing. And I looked up at a picture on the wall, literally holding the oars with my buddies as we went after a championship back then. And I thought, I want to do that again. And so the only way to do that at age 41, lapsed athlete was to be on a team, be part of a team, be an owner of a team, a Boston team. And just all of a sudden that idea just took me over and it's been 20 solid years and I haven't stopped loving it ever since. So, and then I figured I could raise the money to buy the team if I could get the agreement. And he was uh, thoughtful enough to offer a price and I was dumb enough to just take it on the spot. That was my negotiating strategy was I've just gotten a price for the Celtics. I'm going to take it and then put the deposit down and risk all the liquidity I had and then see if I can raise the money. I wouldn't necessarily teach a business class that way, but well, if you really want something, say yes, and then work like hell to figure it out. Right. And it wasn't to go recut the deal later. We didn't recut one iota of the deal, but I did lose 17 pounds raising the money in three months, brought in the great partners, some of whom I mentioned, and I guess I could lose another 17 right now. Maybe I should go try to buy another team. But anyway, that's the story. Not only a talk show, not only a tech show, but also a dieting show. Yes, What do you think has changed in the last 20 years? Because right now you'd be way oversubscribed, right? Think about these teams, how sought after they were. And you're talking about one of the most storied franchises in the history of professional sports here. And you wouldn't have that same opportunity now unless you literally were basically able to take the offer there, right? 
Well, I will tell you, it really has changed a lot. Back in 2002, when I had this idea in the middle of 2002, I would say just the way I remember it, the NBA and the NHL, the teams were trading at about the same and both doing fine. Baseball was up. Obviously, the NFL was up there higher, but it was all still somewhat local the way I remember it. It was, if you're a Boston fan, you probably live within 50 or 100 miles of Boston. There are people all over the world that care for the Celtics, but they weren't able to consume the games. And so the digital distribution globally. And see, now I am not a tech guy, but I'm going to go tech on you. Globalization, digital transformation. I'm going to throw an NFT in a second. <laughs> I was in Morocco on business, you know, and I'm watching a game on my iPhone on a cell connection and it's perfect. So the ability of these local teams to go global has multiplied the reach and the connection with fans exponentially. Is it also the player personalities, the ability for players to have fans from all over the world? Absolutely. And our players are so magnetic and compelling and they're the stars of the show and with good reason. And so when I came in, I said to my folks at the team, the staff, I said, listen, I don't think anybody in Boston can name more than two Celtics players, Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker at the time. And I want them to know everybody. And the whole league does that now. It wasn't just my idea, but that's why people connect. It's not just so much a ball going through a hoop. It's People that they get to know, pros and cons, their works, and people sharing the accomplishments when it goes well. It's great. So how do you feel about sports teams' valuations now? It's a global league. You have people, especially this next generation of owners, largely from financial services, buying NBA teams, NFL teams, maybe even some baseball teams. Valuations have come a long way. And how do you support those valuations? Well, I want to make this a bite-sized answer, but I think that the money is the wrong way to think about these teams anyway. This is for love and passion. And the way it started for me was, let me go win a championship. And then I quickly realized going in there, we help almost a thousand charities a year at the Celtics. There's so much you can do with it that also other teams do the same. But so there's so much more to it, but none of it has to do with money. I'm not made of money. And I'm, as I told you, I put down the deposit, but I had to get a lot of people in to help. But I did it for love and for passion. And so it is hard to put a price on it. And if you bring something to the table, you sell a, a great pro team. There are so many people that have made so much money in the world. But what they're lacking is the self-fulfillment or the ability to raise a trophy over their head or to help the thousand charities. It's so much more than money. And so I think you got to think of a different currency than money when you're thinking about these teams. You just can't get them. It's like collecting art or something, but you can actually go do something with it as well. It's really a very special thing. And it's the love of my life from a living standpoint, other than my very happy marriage. But I'm saying it's such a great fit with me because it's everything I want to do. And you have a global community. I've walked around with you and there's people coming out of the stands to look at the ring, take selfies with your ring, but it's probably less about the ring, but it's everything that the Celtics mean from a community perspective and a group that you're part of, no different than my process trusters. <laughs> it's just amazing. And then you get to meet people like Bill Russell. And the other day I introduced Amelia to Julius Irving. These are just iconic people for such great reasons beyond being skilled athletes. They're great people. Wick, I wanted to ask you over the last 20 years, you said it's not about the money. It's about the passion. And you took on this team that, as Rick just mentioned, meant so much to a region of our country. It's not just a city. And within a few years of your ownership group taking over, you delivered a championship, which must have been absolutely amazing. What was the pressure like? Because you said you lost 17 pounds as you were trying to raise the money. What's the pressure keeping this storied franchise top of mind? in the NBA and then globally, as you just mentioned. 
people used to ask me, isn't the pressure of 16 championships going to be too much? How do you take the burden of maybe the greatest or one of the very few greatest teams? How do you, how are you going to take that on your shoulders? And, and I'd never had an employee, by the way. I was 41 years old. I'd been an investor. I'd had one executive assistant. She's still with me, Wendy Cooper. She has never listened to me for one single time ever. And so it doesn't count really as an employee. I don't know what it is, but it's not an employee. But so, and all of a sudden I'm running the Celtics as the CEO and all that and the lead owner. But I said, look, the upside, if we win a championship and hang a banner in the rafters, I mean, I just got goosebumps talking about it. Okay. I just did. I'm like, that is it. And what if I never win one? I'm there 30 years. I don't even come close. Don't win. I'm going to be the biggest loser of all time. And I'm like, well, I'll take that risk. Was it everything you thought it would be when the banner went up, when you got the ring? It's better. It's insanely better because I've got relationships with everybody on that team till the day I die. That is the way it is. You're welded together. I love teams. I can't do this stuff myself, but doing it as a team, winning a crew race with eight guys, winning a championship with 15 guys with a million fans. Everybody in Boston thinks they own every team, by the way. I feel like I own part of the Patriots, the Bruins, and the Red Sox, too, because I've given my entire life to cheering for them. And so it's not like I own this thing. I've got not only co-owners, but everybody owns it. And once you get that mindset, then you take it all the way, and it doesn't get any better. Philadelphia and Boston are very similar like that. Everybody thinks, although you have no employees, you have a couple million bosses. Yeah, I got plenty of bosses. How's it been, Wick, over the last 20 years since you got into the league? When you think about, you just said team a whole heck of a lot in that whole discussion of winning a championship and what you collectively have built and what you guys are really proud of. But it seems like the league has really changed a lot. Just the sophistication of the players and how they think about their own brands. One of the things that's so unique about the NBA is, and you guys hear this all the time, is there's no helmets. There's only 13 of them on a team. They really can become their own brand, which actually has to make it kind of hard for ownership groups when you think about the way that they used to treat players and think about them as parts of a team. And now it's just changed a whole heck of a lot, hasn't it? I guess it probably has. That's a good question. I want the players to fly as high as possible, not just physically, but in every way. That's my mindset. That's the mindset of the league. I'm just going to sort of go out there and speak for everybody. It may sound like just words, but the truth is we have a partnership. And there's respect. And just the way I feel about the players and what has happened, ups and downs over the 20 years of play with the team, but how I feel for a lifetime, I just feel connected and we're in it together. And so the more empowered and respected and partnership, the more that goes both ways, the better for the league and the better it goes globally. I love what the NBA really stands for or what we all aspire. I'm not going to say the job's done, but what we all aspire I don't want to speak for the players, but what the players and the ownership and the fans and everybody stands for in the NBA, we're not backing down. That's how we feel. And I'm proud to be part of it. I know that sounds like a lot, but it's the truth. Well, let me ask you this, because you just mentioned when you were 41, you had this dream about buying a team that you grew up with and that you felt this tremendous pride to. A lot of these players at very young ages, and I know Rick knows a lot of these guys, the diversification away from just the sport that they're playing and then the way they think about their brand. Rick, you guys are competing with your VC funds with some of these players. There are a lot of VC investor players out there, especially our friend Sue's, probably the biggest, at least physically. Well, yes, physically, no doubt about it. He's certainly very smart. We've had a Donnick and Sue. Wick, are these guys hitting you up? They're coming and say, yeah, yeah, it was a good win today. But hey, how can I get into that hot deal that you guys got going on over there at Causeway? 
I saw Peyton Manning and Eli Manning out at around the Super Bowl, and they're both in a deal that I happen to be in. I didn't bring them in, but they're great partners and great people. And I just really think the more you know, the more you like about being in the NBA. And I didn't know the NBA before I got there. And then it's changed. We've built it together, I guess I'd say, over the 20 years. And I feel like the future is bright. So back to Rick's question about valuations, I kind of blew it off by saying, oh, I don't really want to count it in money. But the fact is, knock on wood, I think there's a real opportunity to at least maintain these lofty valuations I never dreamed of. When I was putting it together, I said, listen, we're paying a record price for the Celtics. We don't own the arena. Nonetheless, this will be by far a record in the NBA. We're probably overpaying, but we're going to have the time of our lives. It might double. It might go down 20%. I think it's always worth something, the Celtics, but we're going to have the time of our lives. That's how you're going to be paid. Imagine yourself in a parade. And if we ever have any extra money around here or whatever, we'll all share it. But that's not the point. So we think of it another way. But when you think of the NBA and where it's going, we're only just getting started internationally is what I truly believe. We're one of the two global sports, soccer and basketball. And we're the one that has a centralized single league really at the top. And I'm part of that. And the sky's the limit. Sounds like you under-promised and over-delivered with your partners. You, you got the ring, you got the parade, and it feels like you're a little bit better than up 100% on your money. So that's fantastic. I've under-delivered probably in other areas, who knows? But the fact is I have 20 partners and all 20 are still, or maybe 21, one left to go by the Warriors, Joe Lacob. He told me when he was coming in, I'm going to be here five years and I'm going to try to go buy a team. He got that done. Everybody else is still with me. You know, Wick, you hit on something that's really important as I think about the investment landscape, specifically here in the U.S. over the last 20 years. I mean, globalization has been a big part of that, but scarcity has been the other big part of it. And when you think about the opportunity set that you must have envisioned, now maybe you're not willing to give yourself as much credit 20 years ago thinking about it on a global scale, but there's only so many new NBA teams that will ever be made and how many have the history that a franchise like the Celtics have. And then when you really broaden it out, these should never trade because if you own them, unless there's somebody who needs some liquidity or whatever, they will only go higher. Isn't that a way to think of it from here on out? Well, I don't want to say that I'm married to a, a fabulous Italian heritage person who, if I ever said it could only go higher, she'd be like, that's the kiss. You've Now you've won it. I'm not going to do that. In honor of Amelia, I will not be issuing any of those statements, but I'm really optimistic. Listen, every day being involved with something like the Celtics is a dream come true. Win or lose. We lost yesterday and I still woke up this morning being the happiest guy in the world. So, Wick, you were a VC. Now you're an MBA owner, and you also have a VC firm called Causeway. And I'm just curious when I think of some of the portfolio companies you have in there. And then Rick just mentioned Omaze at the start, and you guys are both on the board. It's an amazing company. I've met the founder, and their mission is really interesting. It seems very much aligned with what both of you guys, how you think about things philanthropically. What's the mission of Causeway? Is there overlap with the way you see ownership of the Celtics and the opportunity for that brand? Or is it really just an investment vehicle where you're just looking for? for great opportunities. We're managing between three and 400 million at Causeway now. I've got some great partners. It really started being part of the Celtics and thinking I bought a sports team, but I'd actually bought a media company. Turns out it is a digital content company that goes global and creates a community. And a lot of it is digital and all that. And you sort of start thinking, what other things can be updated digitally to go global? What other brands, consumer facing things? I don't have this power of ESP or anything, but I did see something with the Celtics. That thing's going to have value. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the time of my life. Got to go for it. And so that's my level of analysis. You and Rick have a lot deeper, I think, analytical. I'm more instinctive, but I figured there are going to be a lot more things going digital and updating. And so at Causeway, we invested in Omaze. Thank God. It's a great 
idea of taking the basic local sweepstakes or lottery or charity auctions, all those things. And Rick can explain it better. He's been in for years, nicely invited us in, but taking that global in digital and targeting it and just giving a billion dollars to charity before long here, taking things like Formula One, making it electrified, taking things like ticketing and going with SeatGeek, which I can't talk too much about because they're in sort of a registration process, but SeatGeek going after the ticketing market, the secondary tickets used to buy scalper tickets on the sidewalk. Now you buy them from the team and you can transfer them and it all makes sense. Zwift, which is exercise, like a Peloton, it's a digital, it's a metaverse company. You get on your bike, your real bike, and you're in the metaverse riding up the Alpe d'Huez, which is a Tour de France leg. And you're actually burning a thousand calories an hour doing it. It's an amazing workout. So we love just having the analog world turning digital around sports. And sports is really run by 200 people around the world. And if you know all 200 people and it's all going digital, you can make some good investments. The digitization of everything is just a mega trend we see. And then the direct relationship is something we see is everybody used to have gatekeepers and whether they were TV networks or radio networks or someone that kept you from your fans, the more you could be direct with your fans and build those communities, the tighter relationship it is. And then you're just able to build on itself and build on itself more. And there's nothing better than a passionate community. It's interesting when you think about it, we just talked about scarcity and Rick, think about these platforms that you've been investing in for two decades now. You were there web one, you were there web two. We could kind of agree that we're probably web two and a half with some sort of vision of what this next iteration looks like. But if you don't have the content and you don't have the brand, then you are just a gatekeeper. And that's the one thing I'll just tell you when I think about web three, the things that resonate with me is really the fact that a lot of these gatekeepers are coming down. We're seeing this in the stock market. I mean, Wick, Facebook was nearly a trillion dollar market cap just four months ago or five months ago. It got cut in half. Think about that. I think there'll be books written on this, how these empires crumbled. And if you don't think this is going to happen with some of these other big gatekeepers, if you will, you got another thing coming, I suspect. I think the history of the internet is the destruction of the gatekeepers and brokers, whether that's SeatGeek destroying the ticket brokers, whether that's Booking destroying your airline brokers or your hotel travel agents who are taking excess value from you, whether that's next generation, things like Kayak that were on top of it, or when it was really hard to get pictures of and find a vacation rental and the democratization of that by Airbnb. All these gatekeepers, all these agents that were taking excess tolls are being destroyed. But I think we've talked about and we agree that next generation is going to be direct communication and direct access to your investors. And you don't need a researcher telling you if that company's good or not good. You don't need an investment bank serving as a gatekeeper. And you probably don't even need an exchange serving as a gatekeeper in this next generation of DAOs. I think we're going to see all of these historical Gatekeepers, all of these historical toll takers either have the tolls significantly taken down or a tremendous transformation happen as the direct relationships win the day. So I have a question for you both. You just talked about removing gatekeepers. Something flashed in my mind, in my history major average Joe mind, which is the metaverse. And you mentioned meta. The metaverse is trying to destroy the real world. Go live over here. You don't have to even leave your apartment. So the gatekeeper turns into being the local grocery store, but it's like local relationships, going to the bar, going to a restaurant, meeting people, just go meet people in the metaverse now. All right, buy or sell, up or down, the metaverse is going to be dominant in 10 years. 
I would say I don't see it as one thing. I see it as like multiple metaverse. I think the Boston Celtics will have a metaverse. I think that the scarcity of being at a live game will only get better, actually, as the metaverse gets bigger, as people all over the world could be in your metaverse that's going to exist in 10 years. And I mean this sincerely, the actual being there in the spot will only be more valuable. And I think that there's going to be this really interesting barbell approach from the right brands with the right content. And I'm not just speaking to you about this because you own the Celtics, but think about it that way. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast and on CNBC and talking about what is the metaverse. Just because Mark Zuckerberg saw his business crumbling, he decides to change the name of his business and really pivot. But I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity for the right brands who really embrace the technology and what it means to grow their audience, but I don't think it's going to replace these real world experiences personally. What do you call a metaverse, right? My Twitter group around the Sixers is a metaverse. We share pictures and images around that. I think league access of the NBA is effectively a metaverse, especially if you add in a community and communication element of everybody wherever they are in the world watching the Boston Celtics play in real time. Things like League of Legends or video games or metaverses which you live in and you're buying things. And I think people dip in and out. I don't think anything compares to the in-real-life experience of a sports event. And I think you still see that, especially in the reopening, going out, seeing all the green shirts, even in Brooklyn the other night, was amazing. And the whole place was rocking, and I don't think you ever experienced that in a virtual context. So we just spent a lot of time talking about something that's obviously very near and dear to both of your hearts. That's NBA basketball. But let's hit two more things that I think we collectively share a dramatic interest. One is rock and roll and the other one is tequila. We'll do tequila last year. But man, oh man, when Rick said to me, I got a buddy, Wick. And he's a really interesting guy. And he talked about Celtics and he talked about your investment and you talked about your championship rowing at Princeton, all that sort of stuff. But he's like, he's in this band and it's called French Lick. So you're obviously grew up a huge Larry Bird fan, but I was checking out your band and this is fucking nuts, dude. Your band has played with Eddie Vedder, Joan Jett, Lenny Kravitz. And I was looking at a lot of the video and you guys are absolutely legit. So when was the first band that you started and how did French Lick start? And then I have a little speed round. Sounds like you are the drummer of the French Lick. So I got a speed round on rock and roll drummers when you're done with that. I spent the last year learning guitar. Now I'm a rhythm guitar player as well, which is actually even more fun. But when I was six years old, I had some drums. That's all I ever did, drum on the car seat and drum on everything. And that's all I ever hear in music is the drums. And then I heard The Who and Led Zeppelin, and that was it. So I've been a drummer since 1970, and I'm still only mediocre, but I love it. And I brought my drums to college and put them in my dorm room. You'd get sued today. I was going to say, it must have made you somewhat popular, somewhat unpopular. Nobody minded back then. And I had a band called the Daytonas in college. And we played the clubs, the frats, basically, in college. And that was just the most fun you can possibly have, basically. Encores at two in the morning in a frat party kind of thing. It's great. Lapsed for a while, and then I ran into some guys around town in Boston, and I had albums on the wall and drumsticks or whatever, and one guy was a guitarist, and we became best friends. And I actually told him that I had heard his band play at a charity show because there's a lot of charity parties, house parties around Boston, and so they want a band, and so they invite the band. And so I heard his band, and I walk up to him, and I say, hey, you're a really good guitar player, and your drummer's good, and everybody's good, except your lead singer's just terrible. And by the way, I don't sing, okay? I'm just telling you, if you upgraded your lead singer, you'd go somewhere. I just talked to him about being honest. And he's like, huh, 
Well, I agree. Our lead singer sucks. But he goes, let me tell you something. We got a rehearsal tomorrow night and our drummer can't make it. Do you want to come play the drums? And they gave me the job. They kicked the guy out of the band and gave me that job. So that was that. You guys are legit and you play a lot, man. And it seems like you do a lot for charity, which I think is a common theme, Wick. All right. So I got a little speed round for you. Talk about famous drummers. I'm going to give you two choices, all right? It's three rounds here. All right, so give me who you opt for, John Bonham or Ringo Starr? John Bonham. Okay, that seems like an easy one. Keith Moon or Charlie Watts? Keith Moon. I love the late Charlie Watts. He was perfect for the Stones, but if the Stones had Keith Moon, I don't want to disparage Charlie Watts, but Keith Moon and John Bonham are my two favorite drummers. All right, so this one is really more important to me. I'm just a few years younger than you. Dave Grohl. Or Taylor Hawkins? Dave Grohl being an original Nirvana, and I've got his book on my bedside table. I haven't read it yet. Storyteller. I will tell you this, man, and this is one of the things that I've been doing a lot of. I've seen a lot of live sports as soon as they came back on. I travel for Pearl Jam. I travel for Foo Fighters. And so I've seen a bunch over the course of the last year or so, and I can't wait for it just to open up a little bit. We should have done Matt Cameron then. He's a hell of a drummer. I would have done Cameron. I would have done Larry Mullen Jr. I would have done Tommy Lee. Are you are you, are you any hair metal there or no? I just finished the Pam and Tommy show on Hulu. We're up to date on that. How was that? <laughs> it was fine. It was it was fine. keeping that off the public record. Yeah, I probably should. All right. So what's that hair metal? Well, I'll get on my guitar and play for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours at night. And I'll throw Rock You Like a Hurricane in there. I'll throw Scorpions in there. And you give love a bad name and anything I can think of to learn rhythm guitar. It's a lot of fun. We have to hit, before we get going, the other shared passion of tequila. You did ask about the origin story of Sincoro. Look, the NBA Labor Committee was meeting. We were making a new deal with players. The chairman of the committee, Michael Jordan, on the committee, Jeannie Buss of the Lakers, Wes Edens of the Bucks, and yours truly, and a couple others. And so we started thinking about getting together after work one day. Amelia, my girlfriend at the time, I came home and said, these people are so amazing. She said, let's all go to dinner. So she organized a dinner. We're out to dinner at Pasquale Jones with Michael Jordan and Wes Edens had screwed up the reservation. But Michael in real life is truly the greatest guy, the greatest person, character. He's the greatest basketball player of all time for a reason, many reasons, but one of them is his strength of character. Anyway, so we became great friends. That night he's ordering... There's not even any tequila, Pasquale Jones. We're bringing it in from elsewhere, mega bottles. We're drinking it. We had another dinner shortly thereafter. By the end of that dinner at three in the morning, we're like, let's make our own because this is all good, but let's do our own. Just like everybody else, you and Michael Jordan at three o'clock in the morning think it's a great idea to start a booze company. It's my lucky life. You can do the same with Joel Embiid, who's another great player. But we actually went for three years and led by Amelia, but with Michael also tasting everything. They're the two professional palates. We made a thousand tequilas. We went through four distilleries, a thousand, because this isn't unnamed celebrities pulling something off a shelf, getting a stock bottle, sticking a label on it. And what do you know? In a month, they've got tequila. This is three years, a thousand tequilas. It's our life's work. And Michael, by the way, said the other day, I want to be involved in this forever. Okay. This is the way I feel about the Celtics is the way the five of us feel about Sincoro. That's all I'm going to say about that. It is an amazing tequila. I love the Blanco. I haven't had much of the others, but it is a beautiful design. It's a beautiful tasting. It's a sipping tequila. And you guys are probably like me. I swore off Cuervo back in the day. Just the smell of those sorts of tequilas. Pro tip, put some pineapple in some Blanco, put some orange in some Blanco and infuse it. Put a little grapefruit in with some Blanco and infuse it. Maybe a few drops of agave nectar in there and let it sit for a day and you're going to have an amazing drink. 
I will do that. You just mentioned Ryan Hardy, owner chef, Pasquale Jones, Charlie Bird. He is a friend of the pod. He listens. He can be happy to hear that story on the pod. And we love your tequila. We also love another tequila without naming names. You're going to get a bottle of the extra Añejo from Como's because that's one that I recently invested in. Our good friend Joe Marchese and Richard Betts started that. But there's room for all of these delicious tequilas out there, isn't there, Wick? Well, I'll come back on the pod when we've sold our two millionth bottle, which is going to be in like two months from now. Okay. There's plenty of room, but you're going to be in our rearview mirror, I have to say, Dan. Well, fair enough. Listen, man, we want to be appreciative of your time. We really enjoy coming on here. When we started this podcast a few months ago, you were tops on the list for Rick. You said, you got to get Wick. He's doing so many interesting things. And we didn't even get to your philanthropic endeavors. And hopefully next time we'll be able to do that because it sounds like it's very important to you. So thanks a lot for joining us on OK Computer, Rick. And I want to take this opportunity to wish Rick a happy, early, very big birthday coming up, old man. Turning 30. What are you, 60? Look 60, act 15. Hey, you guys are the best. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you, Wick. We appreciate your friendship. Thanks, Wick.